Thank you for listening to the Redemption Church Podcast. information about Redemption Church, please visit redemptionokc.com. You can stay up to date on sermons by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. Hey, everyone. <laughs> uh, like we said, my name is Ernest O'Dunsey, and I'm one of the pastors at Frontline Church, and it is a great honor to be here with you. Uh, Redemption has been so gracious to our family. They allow me to go you, you, go, you all allowed me to go to Ecuador with your team, and I didn't ruin things, so that was amazing, but it had such a deep impact on my life. So your church, even if you don't know, it has been a huge blessing on me and my family, and so thank you, and thank you, Pastor Jeff. If you have a Bible, you can flip or click over to Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, and we'll be reading verses 3 through 9. Three through nine. And before I jump in, I would, I'd be remiss if I didn't say I'm so happy to, that my father, my wife, and my beautiful stepmom are in the building. Thank you guys so much for being here. Verse three through nine. And it reads as such. And while he, being Jesus, was at Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper. As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let me pray for us. Oh, gracious God, will you settle our minds right now? Will you just press pause on the DVD player of our soul? and allow us to tune in to you. Will you allow us to experience you, be encouraged by you, feel the love that you offer, and accept your invitation to experience you in fresh, new ways. We love you, we desire you. Meet with us. In Jesus' name, everybody say it. I am a proud Oklahoman. I'm a proud Oklahoman. I love Oklahoma. 
I love the city that I get to live in, Oklahoma City. I love all 621 square miles of pure, flat beauty. (laughs) I love Oklahoma. Often whenever I travel around, foreigners try to evangelize me about the beauties of their cities or their countries. They begin talking about the glories of the Rockies, the tranquility of the ocean, or or the grandeur of Times Square. And I look at them in the eyes and say, have you seen Lake Hefner? Rodeo Drive, have you been down Danforth? (laughs) I love Oklahoma. I'm a true Oklahoman. And so when I joined AmeriCorps shortly uh, after getting in some trouble, making some poor decisions, finding myself in jail, uh, I I went to AmeriCorps. And through AmeriCorps, I was able to travel the nation. And often I would be asked two categories of questions as I travel. The first question was cultural. It was cultural. I was literally asked the question, do all your houses have shutters on them so that you can avoid arrows? I was literally asked that. And so I get these cultural questions about what does it mean to live in in Oklahoma? Why do you talk so country? Like I get these cultural questions. So that's the first group. But I also get this second group of questions and it goes back to weather. I get lots of questions about weather. I'll say I'm from Oklahoma and they'll say, how many tornadoes have you seen? Like, do you dodge tornadoes every day? Are sirens like continuously blaring in the air? Like, it's all about the weather and they're tapping onto something very unique about the state that I love. We are a weather obsessed state. Some of it comes through just pure practicality but we are a weather-obsessed state. If you, don't, if you don't believe me, what I wanna do right now is try a little experiment, okay? So, play along with me. I'm gonna try a little experiment. On the count of three, what I want you to do is yell out your favorite meteorologist. <laughs> On the count of three, I want you to yell out your favorite meteorologist, either past or present, okay? And if you don't, if you, if you don't play along with me, I'll preach longer. So, <laughs> favorite meteorologist, count of three, okay? You ready? One, two, three. <laughs> I heard all types of names. I heard Gary England, I knew I would hear that one. I heard Damon Lane, I I heard all types of names. Now, listen, you know how I know we're a weather-obsessed state? How many other states can do that? How many other states even know the name of one meteorologist? But not alone, not not just that alone. I know we're a weather-obsessed state because you got offended by the name someone else said. (laughs) So, this is what I know. We are a weather-obsessed state. And as a pastor, 
I get to speak with new members and visitors when they begin to come to the church. And we begin talking about what it looks like to, to navigate the streets of Oklahoma and be a good citizen. And inevitably, the question of weather comes up and the question of tornadoes comes up. And I give them two pieces of advice. Number one, have a safety procedure. Have a safety procedure. Um, invest in a storm shelter if you can. Know a safe place in your home. Um, know one that's in your community. Just have a safety procedure. But then I also give them this second piece of advice. Upgrade your thermostat. Upgrade your thermostat. If you're going to survive in Oklahoma, you better have a top-notch thermostat. Why? Tornadoes are created when, when, when jets of air collide with one another. You have these, uh, the moist air coming from the Gulf of Mexico, these cool uh, jets coming from Canada, and they collide and they create supercells. That's how a tornado is, is created. Now, when they don't collide, they don't create a tornado, they just create misery. They just create misery. In 48 hours, if you live in Oklahoma, you can experience light snow, mild hail, mild hail, pounding rain, crashing thunder, gusting winds, baking sun, and maybe even an earthquake or two just to keep you on your toes. You just never know what you're going to get living in Oklahoma. To survive this beautifully chaotic state, your thermostat isn't a secondary add-on feature. It's a central component for your existence. Upgrade your thermostat. I'm getting somewhere, just keep going with me. Now, what is a thermostat? Definition. A thermostat is a component which senses the temperature of a physical system and performs actions so that the system's temperature is maintained near the desired set point. The set point. To summarize, a thermostat has two functions. To number one, analyze. Analyze the temperature, but then second, to adjust. Adjust to where the temperature should be, but it's all based upon the set point. It's based upon the set point. My proposition today is that many of us are living busy, chaotic, and unfulfilled lives because our analyzing faculties have been warped. And therefore, our adjustments are askew. Because we have drifted from the one and true set point. Let me spoil my sermon. His name is Jesus. Let's jump in. Mark chapter 14, verse 3. The passage picks up with Jesus hanging out at what sounds like an old school backyard barbecue with his closest friends and a few questionable characters. Parallel accounts say that this story found in John 12 and Matthew 26, it's depicting that this event happened immediately after Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And you know what? Lazarus is in attendance of this party. So in many ways, what we're reading here is a welcome back from the dead celebration being held for Lazarus. But not only is Lazarus in attendance, 
But this shindig is being hosted by Simon the leper. Simon's name could better be interpreted Simon the former leper because Jesus actually healed Simon of his leprosy. But unfortunately, history is unkind. Just a side note, can you imagine forever being known for the lowest point of your life? Can you imagine that forever your name is labeled to the lowest moment in your life? It would go something like, uh-oh, here comes Matt the Musty one. Like, that just wouldn't be very fun. Here comes Betty with the burnt cookies. Like, that's just not cool. It's just not cool. Or my favorite, hello, Dan from Dallas. Sorry if you're from Dallas. I'll joke. Okay. Also from the text, we know that the rest of this dinner party was made of Mary and Martha, the sisters of Lazarus, and Jesus's disciples. If you were to read out this full guest list of this old school barbecue, it would read like the beginning of a bad joke. Uh, what happens when you get an ex-leper, an ex-dead guy, a retired tax collector, a bunch of sailors, a religious extremist, and two feuding sisters into a room. Good times. You know what's more scandalous than this guest list is the fact that Jesus is in the house. Jesus is right in the midst of this party. That's scandalous. Not only is Jesus present at the party, but the text describes him as reclining at table. Now, let me break this, let me break this word reclining down. In the Greek, reclining translates to chilling. <laughs> Jesus is chilling with those people. He's chilling with those people. The outsiders, the outcasts, the ones you keep out of the house, you don't bring them in. The one you walk by their party, you don't stop. Those people, Jesus is reclining at table. And this was a pattern throughout Jesus's life. A few examples, Luke chapter five, verse 27, Jesus crashes Levi's party. Levi was a tax collector. Tax collectors were scheming off the Jews. And so these were the people that you would avoid, but Jesus crashes the party. Luke chapter seven, verse 31, uh, Jesus is called by the Pharisees a glutton and a drunkard because he kept hanging out with the questionables. And so they say, since you're around the peop those people that do those things, you must be one of those people that do those things. And therefore, they kept them at arm's length. One more, Luke chapter 19, Jesus dines with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, wee little, Zac wee little Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was not a good guy, but Jesus comes into his living room and fellowships with them. Scandalous. Why was Jesus so comfortable with sinners? You know, want to know why? Because Jesus is the set point. Jesus is 
the set point. Jesus is the eternal son of God who relocated from the pure palatial palaces of heaven to the dark, desolate slums of earth. Jesus was raised by sinners. He lived with sinners. He went to school with sinners. He worked with sinners. And yes, he even ate with sinners. But look at this. Although Jesus loved and gave his life for sinners, he never gave into sin. Although he loved and he fellowshiped with sinners, he never gave in to sin. Instead, he invited sinners to live as he lived. Jesus' setness made him attractive to sinners. I love how Kevin DeYoung puts it. He says this, what we see from the composite of these passages is that sinners were drawn to Jesus that Jesus gladly spent time with sinners who were open to his teaching, that Jesus forgave repentant sinners, and that Jesus embraced sinners who who believed in him. So I have to ask you a question. Are sinners drawn to you? Are sinners drawn to you? Do sinners see something in you that is so attractive, so embracing, so loving that they just want to be around you. That is, what a sent, that is what a set one looks like. They're attractive even to non-believers. But let me give a warning. It's not always a good thing when a sinner says to you, I didn't know you were a Christian. That's not always a good thing. I didn't know you were a Christian. You talk like we talk, you go to the places we go to, you do the exact same, th- same thing as us. You treat women the way we treat women. You put these substances in your body the same way we put the substances into our body. You do everything that we do. I didn't know you were a Christian. That's not always a good thing. And that's not always a badge of honor to be worn. That is the sin of syncretism, being exactly like the world, trying to be so relevant that you push the cross to the side. That's not what we're after. But let me give you a second warning. It's not always a good thing when sinners say to you, I knew you were a Christian. You pull up with your subwoofers bumping K-Love, You got 25 fish stickers on the back of your car. You buy all your clothes at Mardell's. Instead of leaving a tip at the restaurant, you leave a Bible track. You never want to be around us. you're, You're in your own Christian enclave. That's not what we're after either. That's the sin of separatism. That's the sin of separatism. But I believe Jesus calls us to something so much more magnificent. In John 17, verse 15, he says this, I do not ask that you be taken out of the world. That's the sin of separatism. Jesus doesn't want to take you out of the world, take you away from those people, but also... 
I pray that you would be kept from the evil one. So I don't want you to pull away from the world. I want you to be in the world, but I don't want you to be consumed by the world. That's the life that Jesus has called us to. We can live as set ones because Jesus is the set point. Look at how he finishes his prayer. Verse 17, this is how Jesus prays for you and I. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. We're not syncretists, we're not separatists. We are ones who are found in Christ and therefore we can engage the world with peaceful prophetic presence. Let's continue in verse three. So while reclining with sinners, something startling and bizarre occurs that hijacks the entire evening. This is sort of like if you've ever been to a wedding um, and it's time to give toast. And that person gets up to give a toast. You know who that person is. That person that the oxygen goes out of the room because you're like, oh no, oh no, oh no, not Uncle Frank, no. And if you don't know who that person is, you're probably that person. Verse three. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment, of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. This woman we know from other gospel accounts is Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Mary interrupts the cha-cha slide. She finds Jesus seated at the domino's table. She cracks open an expensive container filled with this strong smelling perfume. And she proceeds to pour this costly content on the head of Jesus. Notice, Mary didn't dump it on Jesus's head. What she did was carefully and purposely pour it out on Jesus's head. This is important because later we learn that this alabaster flask full of pure nard would have been worth more than 300 denarii. A denarii was worth a day's worth of labor. So 300 denarii would have been equivalent to one year's salary. Today, this fragrance poured on the head of Jesus would be worth nearly $50,000. $50,000. And so, okay, you're not shocked by that, but let, let me, let me, you're, you're not shocked by that, but so, so let me try to bring some framework to this. So when you hear that number 50,000, don't think merely in terms of making that kind of money over the course of a year. I want you to think, how long would it take for you to save that much money? to save $50,000, and this is being poured out. Why did Mary even have this flask? Was Mary rich? Not at all. According to first century culture, this was, the, was most likely something that Mary had received 
as a family heirloom or an inheritance that would have been passed down through generations. This would be like receiving a trust or a life insurance claim today. If something were to happen to the family, such as famine, invasion, or injury, and individuals were no longer able to work, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus would have relied on this alabaster flask so that they could have some type of financial help. So in many ways, this flask represents financial security. Not only for Mary, but for Martha and Lazarus. This is their financial security. So now Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, financial security is now dripping off of the tangled locks of Jesus' head. This is not Dave Ramsey approved. (laughs) Not Dave Ramsey's approved. This is not a good snowball method. It is not. Not only is it not Dave Ramsey approved, this isn't disciple approved. Verse four, look at their response. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted, wasted, wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. So they scolded her. Often, Audacious acts of worship are seen as wasteful, both inside and outside the church. Let me say that again. Often in your life, what you're going to see is your audacious steps of faith are going to be condemned by those around you, both inside and outside the church. Okay, y'all looking at me funny, so let me bring in some help. Help me out, King David. After seven years of captivity, the Ark of the New Covenant is being brought back to the city of David after seven years of being stolen and kept away. David's response, you can see in 2 Samuel chapter 6. As the Ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw her husband, King David, leaping and dancing before the Lord. And what was her response? She despised, her, despised him in her heart. Audacious acts of worship, of worship are often seen as wasteful. What was Michael thinking? I know what she was thinking because I've thought it and you've thought it before. It don't take all that to worship Jesus. It don't take all that. All that leaping, all that dancing, all that clapping of the hands, it does not take all that to worship Jesus. You're probably just doing that so that you can get attention. It don't take all that to worship Jesus. And You've heard this right before in different ways. I'm not just talking about corporate worship settings. I'm talking about a worship life. Often you hear this, sir, ma'am, all that personal purity stuff, that one woman covenant stuff, it don't take all that to worship Jesus. He wants you to be free and liberal with your body. You don't have to do all that to worship Jesus. That's a waste. 
all that giving to the poor, all that serving, taking a Saturday out of your time. It don't take all that. Jesus would be happy if you just wasted your life on yourself. It don't take all that to worship Jesus. All that prayer, attendance on Sundays, community groups, that's optional. It's optional. It doesn't take all that to worship Jesus. And what they're saying to Mary right now is, Mary, all you needed was just to dab Jesus. You could have took out the little, the, the, the little suction thingy out the top of the bottle, and you could have just got a drop and just dropped it on the head of Jesus. Why would you pour the whole bottle out? The whole bottle? What a waste. Your financial security poured out. What a waste. And so this begs a question. When was the last time that you did something for Jesus that was so lavish, so costly, so extravagant that everyone thought that you were an absolute fool for doing it? When was the last time? And keep in mind, when I say extravagant, I'm not talking about size, amount, quantity. Extravagance is measured in obedience. Obedience is the measure of extravagance. Now check out Jesus's response to the disciples' fake outrage. Chapter six, I mean, verse six. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always will have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can go do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. The disciples were convinced that Jesus was going to side with them and that he was going to label Mary's actions a gross misuse of resources. A gross misuse of resources. That she was purely blinded in a fit of charismatic zeal. They were sure that he would side with them. But they were wrong. They were so wrong. They were 100% wrong. Jesus actually sides with Mary. Jesus doesn't label Mary's actions bizarre, but instead beautiful. So beautiful, in fact, that he said, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, what Mary has done is going to be remembered. How could the disciples have been so wrong? And not just here, all throughout the text we see over and over and over again that they miss who Jesus is and what he's come to do over and over and over again. In Mark chapter 9, after coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, we read this. They kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. So Jesus takes them up and says, I'm going to go away. And they say, what is he talking about? We don't get it. What, 
What are you talking about? You're the, you're the come king. You're supposed to set up shop, pull out your sword, and battle the Roman imperialists right here, right now. That's what we signed up for, to crack open a can of kick butt and take stuff back. And you talking about leaving? They missed it. They totally missed it. Again, in Mark 9, they say this, but they did not understand the saying when he talked about his death and they were afraid to ask him. They missed it. They missed that he came and that he was going to leave so that he can come back with an internal kingdom. If they can miss it, the ones who walked with Jesus, camped out with Jesus 24-7, heard the words of Jesus, saw the miracles of Jesus. If they could miss it, you and I can miss it as well. We can miss it. We can totally miss it. So maybe a better question is, how did Mary get it? How did Mary get it? She didn't camp with Jesus 24-7. She saw a few miracles, but she didn't see all of them. But she so gets it. How? And I think this answer can be found in, the, in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verse 38, this is the story of Mary and Martha, and it reads as such. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, when Jesus says your name two times, it's not a good thing. It's like when the middle name comes out. My daddy was talking to me, and he said, Ernest Omega Odun. I'd be like, oh my goodness. I have not done something right. Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Did you see where Mary was and what she was doing? She was at the feet of of Jesus. Even amidst the craziness that is going all around, all the hecticness, all the planning, all the stuff that needed to get done, Mary is at the feet of Jesus in his presence, listening to his words and just enjoying his presence. She took the time to sit at the feet of Jesus and give her ear and give her entire life to his words. Jesus was Mary's set point. Jesus was Mary's set point. Unless we think this is the only time, I mean, all throughout scriptures, we see over and over again, when Mary's name comes up, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. This is something that is a regular practice throughout her life. 
when things go hectic with her brother, she doesn't spaz out. She doesn't cast and push Jesus aside. She falls at his feet. And John 11 says that she fell at his feet, uh, at the feet of Jesus and grieved. She constantly fell at the feet of Jesus. So by breaking this flask over Jesus' head, Mary shows that she has come to a place in her life where she believes Jesus is worthy of all her worship that Jesus is worthy of all her praise, that Jesus is worthy of all her life. Jesus was more than a mere miracle man to Mary. Mary believed that he did more than raise her brother from the dead. Mary recognized that Jesus was the one who has come and he is who he says that he is, that he is God himself her deliverer, her life, her redeemer, her soon-to-be-risen savior. By breaking this flask over Jesus' head, Mary was expressing and saying loud and clear, Jesus, you are more precious, you are the most precious thing in my entire life. You are more valuable than this alabaster, alabaster flask, and everything in comparison to you is inferior. In this act, Mary was declaring that this box was my hope. It was my security. It was what I went to whenever I needed my fears to be calmed. It was where I went to when I had worries about the future. But now, Jesus, you're my security. You're my hope. You're who I go to to calm my fears. You're who I come to when I have difficulties with the future. You are the one that I fall out and worship, not this alabaster flask. Jesus, you are better. Jesus, you are better. So let's land this plane. And I want to be super practical. Um, my beautiful wife and I, we have the blessing of, of raising two kids. Uh, a five-year-old, his name is Ezra, and a six-year-old, his name is Ernest III. Uh, we have the blessing of raising these two beautiful kiddos. And they're eight months apart. They're eight months apart. Um, I know. I know. I know. I really love my wife. Um, <laughs> So our five-year-old was born at nearly 24 weeks of age, and, and, and he weighed one pound, uh, 10 ounces. And, and today he's healthy, he's feisty, he has his bigger-than-life personality. I love this kiddo, but, but early, early in his life, he had brain bleeds, and so now he has signs of high-functioning autism. So he gets fixated on things. Like he gets super fixated on things. And one thing he gets fixated on are buttons. He loves buttons. So if we show up to your house, your doorbell will be pressed 200 times before you get to the door. If we're going to ride in the car with you, I'm going to suggest that you put on the window locks. Otherwise, your windows will go up and down, up and down, up and down. He loves pressing buttons. So every now and then, uh, we'll, we'll, walk, we'll, we'll be sleeping and we'll awake either in a puddle of sweat or shivering. And I'll say, who touched the thermostat? 
but I stopped asking that question because I know who touched the thermostat. The button freak named Ezra. He just wants to press buttons. He doesn't know what he's doing, but he's just pressing buttons. And so many times he'll turn the thermostat off the set point. This is my contention today. I think many here today have a toddler living in, in their soul. Many of us today have a toddler that's living in our soul. And this toddler is frantically pressing buttons, frantically pressing buttons, trying to adjust to the hard things that are going on in life. The problems in the family, the problems at school, the problems in marriage, the problems with finances. I wanted to fix, I wanted to feel better, so just get the pressing buttons. And somewhere along the way, your set point got off. Somewhere along the way, your set point got off. You've repented of sins, you've placed your trust in Jesus, but still you find yourself exhausted. You feel like those jet streams have come in and you're starting to see a funnel begin to drop and you feel like either you're going to be destroyed or you're going to destroy someone else's life. That's the way life feels. But this is what I would say. Return Jesus back to being your set point. Return Jesus to being your set point. Allow Jesus to be restored to the throne of your heart. Like the disciples, we can get off sometimes, but luckily we can get back on course by returning Jesus to the set point. I love how James K.A. Smith says this. He says, worship works from the top down. You might say, in worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter with God, he remakes and molds us from the top down. This is important. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our heart. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our heart, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because in the gymnasium, in which God restrains our hearts. It is the gymnasium in which God restrains our hearts. Your heart is the thermostat of your being. You recalibrate your heart through worshipful rhythms of rest and resistance. Worship is actively identifying the false and lesser gods that you have allowed to supersede Jesus in your heart. Worship puts Jesus back on the throne. Rest is the act of reminding our hearts that Jesus is better at being God than we are. Jesus is a better God. When resting in God, we are reminded that we are human beings, not human doings. We are reminded that we are human beings, not human doings. And finally, resistance is letting go of both pet sins and WMDs. What are those? Pet sins. These are things we know we shouldn't do, but we just want to do them. 
We know they go against the word of God. We know they're desensitizing our hearts to having affections for them. We know that they're putting a separation between us and our Savior, but they make us feel better. It's like petting a fluffy dog. It just feels good. And so we keep these pet sins not knowing that it's actually a bear that's going to eat our face. Release your pet sins. Why? Not as an act of legalism, but because Jesus is better. He'll take up that space. He will become desirable to you and you will, and those funnels will pull back up into the nimbus stratus cloud and you will live a life of more beauty. Release the pet sin. WMDs, these are weapons of mass distraction. What are your WMDs? What are those things that pull you away for setting your heart and your affections to Christ? Because they're entertaining. Is it the Netflix? Is it the video game? Is it tinkering with the car? These aren't bad things. But what I'm asking are, are they getting in the way of your affections? Be willing to say, Lord, search me, know my heart, and liberate me from those things I'm putting before you. Hand them over to Jesus because he is better. He is better. Finally, there's a final group of people that are here today. And these are the individuals who don't just need a recalibration in the heart. You need a new one. You need a new one. You don't experience God the way you desire to. You don't know him as deep as you want to because you haven't fallen at his feet yet. And that's nothing to be shamed about. Why? Because Jesus has an open invitation and he desires to meet with you. So this is what I don't want you to do. Don't fake it till you make it. Don't play cosmic hide and seek from God. He will win. Fall at his feet. He desires to have a relationship with you. God wants you to know this today. He isn't asking first something from you, but he desires to give something to you. God isn't first asking you to love him. He wants you to know that through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he has first loved you. God isn't asking you to waste your life for him. No, no, no. Jesus wants you to receive his life that was poured out for you. God doesn't want your treasures. He wants to be treasured. Allow God to be your set point. Let's stand together.